This is episode 59 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with Kathleen Schmidt. Kathleen was born in Chicago on January 1st, long enough ago that she remembers watching the broadcast of Mankind's First Steps on the Moon. In second grade, she was invited to a horseback riding lesson at which she instantly discovered her life vocation, horses. Horse-focused summer camp supplemented the usual weekly riding lessons right through high school. During her senior year of high school, Kathleen worked at Pine Grove Farms, just outside Scalesbound, Illinois, population under 400 and not on every map. It was a far cry in every way from her urban upbringing. Among their other horses, the farm bred a distinctive line of horses, Davenport Arabians. One morning after high school graduation, one owner remarked that one of their horses was looking less robust than usual. She speculated that in the next winter could be especially hard on him. As a joke, Kathleen suggested riding him to a sister farm in Arizona. The owner went to get an atlas. The idea of the Grand Trek was born. Between riding and training in Britain and Germany and graduating from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, it took until the first woman was nominated to the Supreme Court before Kathleen got around to undertaking the Grand Trek. The Trekkers... Jack, a national champion trail horse, Murphy, a half Davenport with a spotty history as saddle horses go, and Country Boy, a boxer dog who had a lot of learning to do to fulfill his role as the pod protector, departed from the Lincoln Memorial to hit the road to California. Over back roads and through rural communities, the Grand Trek mostly paralleled the National Turnpike, Route 40, and therefore followed the general path of European westward settlement. After seven months on the road, Kathleen returned to the East Coast and started a hike up the corporate ladder. Bill Clinton was president when she later stepped off the ladder and returned to her vocation, restoring a formerly prominent horse boarding and training operation to a thriving horse boarding and training facility. People asked often enough about the Grand Trek that Kathleen resorted to writing some of the more interesting days before, during, and after. The result is the best that can happen, the Grand Trek. Kathleen is currently working on a sequel about adventures after the Grand Trek. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to be talking with Kathleen Schmidt. Hi, Kathleen. Welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. Hi, Carly. Thank you. Oh, yes. Well, we're going to have an exciting conversation today because Kathleen has one heck of a horsey background. And for those of you that are listening to the show and know all about me, I love to start these conversations off with asking the authors how their love affair with horses began. Can you tell us about that, Kathleen? When I was in second grade, a second grade friend of mine, for some reason, invited me to go with her to a horseback riding and to my astonishment, my mother, who was not 
at all into animals of any kind, agreed. And when I hit the back of the horse and saw that Bebit and Gray's mane from the top of the horse for the first time, I knew when I went why I had been born. It was uh, from that point forward that horses became very much a central focus of my life. Oh, yes. And that's a magical moment looking down from for the first time on the neck of a beautiful horse with that mane flowing out. There's nothing like that feeling in the world. <laughs> right, right. So, and as I was galloping around your website, doing a little research, preparing for our interview, I saw that you have some pretty spectacular horse training experience in your background. You've studied in Britain and Germany. Can you tell listeners a little bit about your experience working with horses overseas? I took a gap year uh, after high school and went to get uh, certification as an instructor under the British Horse Society and went through all that training and came back to the States thinking I knew what I was doing and uh, made my way through college, basically taking horses off the racetrack and putting them in the hunt field or the show ring. And then through a very convoluted set of circumstances, I ended up uh, training at Dr. Reinhard Klimka's place, uh, Dr. Klimka being the multiple world champion and multiple Olympian in, in, in northern Germany. And he, in turn, found me a position at the Baron Constantine von Herrmann's facilities, which were quite nice, trust me. <laughs> Chandeliers and the riding ring and all that. And the whole approach that I saw being taken in America, there's a certain stereotype of the Germans being so rough on their horses. That just isn't what I saw there at all. There was exactly one horse that we ever used draw reins on, and he was indeed worthy of needing some extra help. <laughs> I mean, their whole approach was very much more looking at training as gymnastics or even yoga for horses, very much into the physical development. And the whole point of training, in their view, is to have horse so fully developed that whatever talent they have would be fully utilized. For example, one morning, they raked one of the outdoor arenas clear, and um, I warmed up one of the horses, and I was directed to take the horse to this arena and trot around it once. And then got off the horse and we went and measured the hoof prints. Hmm. The idea being not so much is this right or wrong, but why would a horse, for example, you'd find there'd be a pattern to this all the time. For example, on a turn, why would a horse uh, plant their foot, their hind leg to the side or to the inside or the outside of the forefoot print? It says something about what the horse is doing physically. Or maybe it's the rider that is doing something <clears throat> that is causing the horse to have to support the rider differently. So it also comes back to how the rider is influencing the horse at that moment and also for their overall physical development. So all of the various school figures took on a whole new meaning. Uh, if, if you're doing a 20-meter circle to the left and you have a different number of strides going to the right, what does that tell you about the horses? I mean, they would get very detailed about that. And I remember one time 
I was I was uh, required to give Dr. Klimka a launch lesson. It, like I was supposed to tell the world champion Olympic guy what to do, right? And, and his method of uh, teaching was, you know, okay, what do you see? What's going on here? If I change this, how does that affect the horse? And, you know, very small changes were reflected. I mean, it was obviously a very highly trained horse, so he would reflect. But any horse has to really, when you think about it, reflect what the rider is doing and how they're influencing them. So there is very heavy emphasis on developing your observational skills and planning how to address whatever you found out from that. You know, if you have a certain, uh, if you've discovered a certain uh, pattern in the horse's way of going about things, what does it mean and what you need to do in your training to overcome that? Wow, that's fascinating. So it's really about balance and unity between the horse and the rider is what I'm hearing. Yes. And very, very measured and specific ways of looking for that imbalance and trying to get to that perfect balance. That that must have been fascinating and changed the way you relate with your horse, I I imagine. Your horse is. Oh, yeah. Uh, It it puts you in a whole different perspective as opposed to just here, horse, go do this, go do that. It's how can I help you? Mm. What can I do to help you do what I'm, what we're after? Uh, and, and I don't think that that's uh, often brought out about, granted, the, where I was training was not necessarily a run-of-the-mill German place, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, kind of a life-changing thing. And again, it wasn't so much it, 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 when you find something out, it wasn't, is this right or is this wrong, but what are you going to do about it? What does it mean? What plan of action are you going to take about it? That's a great philosophy, not only about horses, but life and writing and all of those things. Like there's right and wrong. There's this balance in the middle. And what are you going to do to make the adjustments to keep moving things forward? Right. That's fascinating. And I can only imagine all of this experience and this amazing horsemanship, the amazing horsemanship skills you learned while you were overseas and then brought that back only influenced the book that we're going to get into here and start talking about, which is the Grand Trek. But before we hop into that conversation, because I think that's going to be a, an amazing conversation, the bulk of this conversation, you have written uh, several books. Can you talk to us a little bit about the books that, you, that you've written? And then, and then we'll get into the Grand Trek, which is the bulk of our interview today. The first book I wrote was actually a translation from the German to English about uh, the history of Arabian horses. And the fellow who wrote that had rather controversial take on the whole thing in that he was saying, and we're talking a long time ago, the horses are not native to the desert by any stretch. And so the idea was that Arabian horses, horses that ended up in Arabia, would have come from Egypt, for example, or possibly other areas of what we would now consider the Ottoman Empire. And the Bedouins don't mess around. Uh, They're not giving their horses any extra help under the harsh circumstances, so that there is actually a pretty high mortality rate of horses in the Arabian desert with the Bedouins. And so the uh, genetic variation among desert-bred horses um, would have, and this has been demonstrated since, 
would have been very narrow. The horses that survived would have been unique animals that uh, brought on some very unique traits. Mm. The uh, family at which I ended up living for a while in high school uh, bred a line of horses called Davenport Arabians that traced back to an importation by Homer Davenport in 1911-1912. And he had gotten some horses directly from the Arabian Bedouins. He brought back the horses that the Bedouins thought were good horses. Uh, some horses had been imported from Egypt into England. And those fine horses, but not the same. And the Davenport Arabians that are still around, boy, they are a different act. They can live on a third of what other horses, including other Arabians, and, and their personalities. I can very much see them living in a Bedouin tent. That would not be a problem for them. Um, for a while, I had at my stable a, uh, we call him the Wild Arabian Stallion. Shake the Wild Arabian Stallion. He would, I, I would find him curled up in the stall. The farrier would be curled up with him, you know, laying down, all cuddled together. He was possibly the kindest horse that I've ever met. I was uh, training another young Davenport Arab, and somebody put their jacket across the rail. <gasps> oh my God, oh, that's terrible. Oh no, it's spooking, shining, all this sort of stuff. So, uh, the rider got off the horse, led her up to the jacket so she could take a look at it. She grabbed the jacket off the fence, threw it down on the ground, and stomped up and said, okay, I saved everybody. We're good now. <laughs> so if you don't like Arabians, you'd like Davenport Arabians. Yeah, and what makes them – so what is what is a bit of the background about the, the Davenport Arabians? Obviously, they were imported, and they came over here, and, and they are these are animals that can survive on, on very little because they passed on the best genes because there isn't hardly anything to eat in the desert, right? So, But, but I'm hearing they're highly intellectual, and they're very loving and silly, kind of silly horses. Oh, yeah, so. they, they have, I think, uh, as much personality as a group as any – other kinds of horses I've ever messed with. Yeah, so your book documents the Davenport Arabian, correct? Well, the translation that I did uh, talks about that derivation of Arabian bloodlines mm. in the Arabian desert mm -hmm. and how that influenced uh, the development of the breed and uh, that in turn influenced the horses that came over with this uh, importation by Helm and Davenport, and they've been brought on as a subgroup since then. Very cool. Now, this is I'm excited about. So, talk to us about your book, The Grand Track. What What is this book about? Share Share with listeners what this book is about, and then we're going to dive into this topic. <laughs> it's about when I decided to ride a horse from east coast to west and it includes how that idea came up uh preparing for it getting the horses getting the dog and getting the dog protection trained actually planning out a route which was useless don't if you're going to do something like this don't bother to plan just put the saddle on the horse and go <laughs> and uh various events uh, along the route and then coming back and 
adjusting back to, shall we say, normal life. And then realizing, what am I insane? What am I doing in the corporate world? We got to do something about this and returning to my first love. Which is versus, yeah. So this is this is a memoir. This is a love story. This is a this is a, a a trip that you took on horseback on your own, and you. Well, I had a dog. He had country boy. That's right. I'm sorry. I should say you had your wonderful animal companions, which are often more fun even than having a human along. <laughs> and and you decided to document this and tell a story about your grand truck. And I can only imagine preparing for that really took something. But then to do it on your own as a strong woman with your with your animal companions and take care of them along the way, I can only imagine the growth that you experienced and the peace of mind you probably found when you're out doing this this ride. Yeah, that is a different experience. Uh just spending that much time alone. The book really only covers some of the highlights. Uh, some of the uh, events that I found over time were really worth remembering and recounting because I'll tell you, a lot of a trip like that is fairly boring, believe it or not. There's only so much of it that, uh, you know, a few years on seems to be worth remembering. That, you know, and and that's sort of how we remember life, right? Through stories right, right. And, and that's how we capture life because there's a lot of stuff that isn't going on but then these these stories make up the fabric of our lives right and so you you took you know the ones that really meant something and you put them into a book so you could share the journey with others and one of the things that I you know I love cowboys and cowboy hats and cowgirls and you Mm -hmm. know one of my favorite parts was you have a you have a section in there called the cowboy hat test So I thought it would be fun for listeners to hear your thoughts on the cowboy hat and the cowboy hat test and how how people can pass this test. (laughs) Should you be asked to pass the cowboy hat test? Pretty simple. It's a three-part test. (laughs) Question number one. What's the difference between hay and straw? Question number two. Can you tell the difference between cow manure and horse manure? A skill every cowboy should have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then the important third question is, let's say you have two people, both legitimately wearing cowboy hats. What happens to the cowboy hats if they kiss? You know, with the wide brim. Mm -hmm. That was my favorite part. Yeah, yeah, the answer's in the book. So yeah. yes, of course. So we don't want to we don't want to give away the answer. So so going back and in writing your story after so many years separated, did did you do anything to keep while you're on the trip? To did you carry a journal? Did you make notes? And then as you were kind of reminiscing about about your journey, was it hard to get back to that place to write the memoir, or did the muse suddenly say, "This is how we're going to tell this. We're going to tell this in stories as opposed to." chronicling the whole track yes it was a matter of the muse hit or i could tell what was of interest to people if i would tell certain stories about the track and how they how the subject came up what was of interest why people liked it that really helped shape what i felt was worth writing about Mm -hmm. 
That makes a lot of sense. So, yes, I did. I did keep a journal, but by the time I actually got to the stage of setting this all down, it was in pretty battered shape, and uh, uh, it, it was worth referring back to. There are a couple of things I had kind of misremembered, and uh, so the journal was useful, but not as much as you might think. Mm. And how long did it take you to complete your your writing project? Did you sit down and write it all at once or did you come back to it? Did you take breaks? Did you have a writing routine to to get your book complete? No, I didn't have any particular routine. Uh, just kind of one chapter would lead to the next, would lead to the next. Uh, as I was working around the barn, I'd think about what be conveyed next, uh, how to set that up, how to uh, phrase things, how to present the various situations and people. So I can't say that there was any particular uh, method to it. I would say all in all to get the first draft done probably took a couple months. Hmm. That, well, and that's pretty incredible because it's, it's a big book. So, you know, writing it in a few months is, is wonderful. And I think you mentioned something really interesting because the funny thing about writing, and, and you touched on it, is that a lot of the concepts and a lot of the ideas actually come when you're not sitting at sure. the keyboard, you know, you were saying when you're working with the horses, the ideas would, would come and that's often how it is. And then when those ideas came, did you, did you quickly jot them down in notes so you'd remember what you were thinking? Or did you just then after the, after the cleaning of the barn or doing what you were doing and the ideas were bubbling up, did you get to the computer to capture them? It would be after the day's work. And, and what I like about memoir is that it is your life experience. It's something that you did and, and <clears throat> you took on this grand trek and then you wrote your, your story about it. But in memoir, often there's so much for other people to learn as they're following along on this journey that you went on. Is there a message in, in the grand trek that you hope readers walk away having gotten after reading your book? The first lesson that I learned is Water, water for self and stock is paramount. Mm. Everything stops without water. And we need to be cognizant of that in our own lives and for society as a whole, I think also. The other uh, idea is I think that you don't always get your right dream right first off it might take a couple tries to get to what is really the most important way to pursue your life dream yeah and and that's great advice you know it's like keep but keep on keeping on right like don't ever give up on that dream you might not nail it the first time and be ready to change it Mm. because the way that you uh think is not necessarily, for example, one of my great lessons on this is what I call, as life adventures go, I see that there are real adventures, and then there are what I call apparent adventures. And I think the Grand Trek was basically an apparent adventure. It was, it was a pad contrived. It didn't fit in all that well with the rest of my life. And it wasn't until many years later I realized that that wasn't my truest life dream. Hmm. It was a nice adventure, but it wasn't the same as my true life dream. And since 
Yeah, it, it completely makes sense. And it, it was an adventure along the way. Did it help you shift towards that, having been on that adventure? Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of value in it of itself. Mm-hmm. But it uh, wasn't really until I opened up my training facility mm-hmm. that I really felt I had hit my true life dream, mm-hmm. as opposed to a youthful adventure. Yeah, but all of those horse lessons learned, you know, from your training when you were overseas and uh, Britain and Germany to taking this horseback adventure really took you right to what your overall dream was, which was having your own training facility and implementing all those skills and all of that knowledge that you had along the way. So so now you are living that one true dream, right? So you found it. I used to get amused at the training barn. Uh, that people thought that I wasn't big on trail riding. <laughs> yes, it was an investigation also into how horses fit into life. Mm. I was not always clear on my boarders and clients what role their horses played in their life. Some of them didn't seem to have all that great a connection and others were totally devoted. Mm. And, you know, it's such an internal process sometimes that it's, 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 it's not easy to make a judgment on how horses influence people, but I know they do. Oh, absolutely. If only, you know, learning how your actions influence another creature. Hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't it be lovely if we were all far more aware of how our, our actions influence others and other creatures. I mean, I just think the world would be a more beautiful place. So you're, but you're teaching that in your trading facility is, is the connection and, and thinking about right. the other as opposed to the self. That's what I'm hearing. Right. You're saying. Right. right. Yeah. I found that some people were very receptive to that and other people just want to go hit the trails mm-hmm. and hang out and socialize with the barn buddies. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they're not gaining from their connection with horses. Oh, yeah. The way I do it, you know. Yeah, but you know, it's an, it's interest, it's an interesting conversation to bring to people's attention because sometimes that the awareness isn't even there, you know, it's like, this is just my horse I'm going to get on as opposed to like really connecting. So you're coaching people on that. Do you prefer independent publishing or traditional publishing? Oh, I forgot to mention another book that I wrote called Mm -hmm. The Steel Seat for a traditional press. First of all, I learned about publishing contracts. Mm -hmm. Then I learned you're going to have to do all your own marketing anyway. Mm-hmm. So producing the book these days is not that big a deal if you have some computer savvy or you can hire it. So I just kind of didn't see the point in using a traditional publisher for mm-hmm. this particular book. I don't think they would be interested in it anyway. Maybe, you know. well, yeah, that's what they that's what they tell us horse horse book authors that it's a little too niche. Uh, but but we are all out here doing a great job with independent publishing and we have rabid, you know, rabid readers that love horses. So, so this is a genre that I think is really strong and important. And that's why I put the podcast together. So, so would you, would you share a little bit about your experience with the traditional publisher? Either way is fine. It's what you choose independent publishing or traditional publishing. We're, you know, we don't poo poo anything on the show, but, but some, some of the experiences that other authors have had with traditional publishers, I think is valuable to discuss. So people that are looking to embark on this journey understand some of the things 
that can happen. And I know you mentioned contracts. Did you, could you talk a little bit or maybe expand upon why uh, you, you had not that great of an experience, but you know, I heard you say you have to do your own marketing, which is very much the case now. Every author, whether you're traditional or independent is required to do their own marketing. So can you touch on the contract a little bit more where, where that got sticky for you? You know, there are two things. Uh, one clause says that they had rights to anything I wrote in the same genre, hmm. like forever. I would have to find the contract to, to see if there's a time limitation. I mean, this all happened quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. by now. And I don't think I necessarily had to agree to that. If I had been a more experienced author... I would have said, we'll negotiate that when we'll see what happens. As opposed to just, okay, whatever. And then they gave me a fairly decent advance, but then I had to spend basically all that money plus a bit to pay for the illustrations to go in the book. And in a horse book, you're going to have a lot of pictures. And they're not free. Mm. The net out of all that was basically nothing. So... So that's, that's interesting. So they didn't cover the illustrations that were meant to go inside of your book. They, they had you do that. That's really interesting. And I think you really touched on something. Sometimes new authors are so excited, right, to get that contract and be like, oh, I'm traditionally published, that they don't do their due diligence and like really read the small print. Because we're talking about intellectual property here that, that right. is yours. Good for you, too, though. I mean, you've had the experience of trying both both ways and then you on this book you opted to go independent and how lucky are we that we have the ability to do that right right you know writing memoir is an is an is interesting because it's it's very personal it's like part of who you are it's your story do you have any advice that you would share with authors who are interested in writing memoir uh any anything to look out for or or something that you you found useful to get those stories down on the page i suppose it entirely has to do with what it is you're trying to convey if if you're trying to basically provide some sort of life guidance then that's going to shape what it is you're going to write about if it's just you know look at me or you know gosh this happened and that happened I don't know that that's going to resonate that much with that many people. But if you've truly got a lesson learned sort of approach to it, I, I think people would enjoy finding out, you know, here, you go do it and I'll figure it out, you know, so I don't have to figure it out. <laughs> um, and, and that's what I enjoy about reading memoirs. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the most the most important thing to think about when you're telling your story in a memoir is how can this my stories help and benefit my reader at the same time. I think so. Right. What I was I was so impressed with you, Kathleen, when you reached out to me because talk about a prepared author. You really sent me a wonderfully detailed press kit, which I think is an important tool for authors to have and know about. And yours was so detailed. It had your author bio, your book bio, book excerpts, uh, interview questions. So you, so people could actually ask you questions you had previously prepared. Uh, you had your target audience, story ideas for reporters, your press release, contact info, and photographs. I mean, this was the most detailed press kit I have 
received from an author. And I was, I was so impressed with it. And I wanted to talk about it. How did you come about putting together the press kit for, for this, for this book that has so much information? And it's like, you, you just handed me a very valuable resource. And it's the same that you could do if you wanted to work with the media or anyone else, like that you laid, laid everything out. And what's so great about it too, is there isn't any, there's no tricks because you, you provided your messaging to me and said, this is, this is what I'm all about. This is what I want to talk about. This is what the book's about. So let's talk about your press kit. How did you come to pull that together? Uh, there are a lot of websites that give advice for independent authors. Mm-hmm. And one of them said, you have to have a press kit and this is what should be in it. And so I'm so like, okay. And mm-hmm. put it together. Uh, didn't know that uh, authors needed press kits and now I have one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how I'm going to use it, that's a different issue. I have to about that right which well which is really exciting because you shared with me that this is your first podcast interview and I'm so yeah, honored yeah. thank yeah. you thank you're you doing so. a, you're doing a great job and then you know that is a question how do you plan to reach readers of your book like what things have you been doing and where you think you're heading I mean you have a great press kit so media outreach is certainly something that you could do around this release well yes uh, there's reaching out one of the ideas I've had about marketing is to reach out to press and radio mm. uh, along the route that I took. So that's kind of what I'm looking at next. And travel yeah. memoir and travel blogging and this whole experience of getting out into nature, particularly right now, right. Uh, given where we are with COVID, this is very popular stuff. So you're this is a great time to be out there talking about what it was like. Yeah, I don't know that I'd want to actually do it again right at the moment. It would probably not be wise. But uh, yeah, I think that people might enjoy reading about it. Absolutely. And it's so smart that you said uh, connecting with local media, radio stations along the route that you took. That's that's brilliant. That's sort of like a, a book tour in the <laughs> audio realm. <laughs> and then I, I, I ran across one idea that a lot of radio stations hold contests. Mm-hmm. I think they should hold the cowboy hit contest. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's so smart. Because that was that was like one of my very, most favorite parts. And it's like, it's, you know, we don't want to give it away, right? Because people want to read the book. But I think that, that would, that's a brilliant idea, the cowboy hat contest, for sure. So You're, you have to craft that and make that as a lead and attach the press kit to it. And mm-hmm. it happens. That's great. Well, and, and see, this, this is a cool conversation because a couple of things that I heard you say while we talked about your press kit is you did the important step of educating yourself on what sort of tools you need as an independent author to really make a splash and reach your readers. So, so that is one very important thing to do as an independent author always is educate yourself. And you did that. There are a lot of resources out there. Yeah, and and what I've found from the independent author community is we're a friendly bunch, and we're mm-hmm. always willing to help each other and support each other, and mm-hmm. you know help this movement grow. That's what this podcast is for—to help share our stories and educate each other on on next steps. You're looking, you know, and you're starting to grow your feelers for what a campaign around your book can look like, and and you're doing the right thing by setting yourself up for success on the back end by having materials to provide to people. You got to tell them what it is. So what do you wish you had known when you started out on this whole 
author journey? Like if you could go back and tell yourself something before you wrote your first book, what, what, what would that be? It's one thing to write the book. It's another thing to actually get it sold. Mm-hmm. And also with my accounting background, I will say that the margin on books is very slim. So not everybody's going to come up with a Harry Potter. And I don't know that this is necessarily going to be in that realm. But if you can uh, at least break even, make a little bit, uh, don't think that that's a small achievement. That is uh, definitely worth applauding. <clears throat> For sure, because I, you know some some listeners who may be listening to the show because they love horse books and the authors who write them and want to learn more about their backgrounds. That the, sell you have to sell a monumental amount of books to come out uh, ahead. And for every paperback version, and even as independent authors, we make a little bit more royalty than you would if you were traditionally published. But uh, for every paperback we sell, we make like maybe a dollar. I wouldn't do it just for the money, although I began with a bit of accounting in my blood, getting smart about how to, how to, how to, how to distribute it properly. It can make a big difference. Yeah, and so I noticed that at the moment, the Grand Trek is, if you want the paperback, you can. It's only available on your website, which is pretty cool because you kind of own all of that. So, have you considered distributing it a little broader to like Amazon and some of the other book sites, or do you like the control of just selling it through your website? Talk to us a little bit of why you made that decision. It's not so much a matter of control on the property, mm-hmm. is that I have some basic issues with Amazon and Facebook. Mm. I mean, I do order some things from Amazon upon occasion. I'm not on Facebook. I think it's just a matter of personal principle. Mm. And so for printing of your book, where, where, where do you get your books from? I've been using Barnes & Noble Press. Like any print-on-demand operation, they produce what you give them. So for you, I always like to ask this question because every author has a different perspective on these these two different topics. So, so one would be, what is the best part about being an author? But then on the flip side of that, what is the hardest part about being an author? I really enjoy just plain writing. I really enjoy crafting a story. I enjoy imagining how the reader is going to receive what I'm writing, which is not always the way I think. And that whole process of just putting it down on paper, I find very entertaining and worthwhile. You know, you can change a word and change the sense of things quite a lot just by the, the selection of words and thought stream. The hard part so far has been the marketing. The book is written, and now what do I do with it? So market it. <laughs> it's it's my current challenge. Mm-hmm. And but what's amazing is it's it's all about educating yourself, which you're clearly good at doing. And it, this is just the next step in the evolution of this book for you is getting the marketing arm going. And you are not the first author, actually. I think that is the most popular response to what's the hardest thing about being an author is the marketing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of us just want to sit and write. But if people don't know about your book and you don't get out there and talk about your book, then people aren't going to be able to find your book. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's just one of those conundrums that comes along with having 
written a book. <laughs> but there's yeah, people out there to help you. Business end of things and the business end of things, I have no problem with this being a business, but it is a different experience than the writing. Mm-hmm. So is there anything one of your readers might be surprised to learn about you? I'm probably more sensible than the book may convey, mm-hmm. or perhaps I've just become more sensible. <laughs> You're growing up, right? <laughs> well, that would be the hope. As as we all grow older, we become a little more sensible. But, you know, in your storytelling, though, so, you know, there has to be that element of engagement in the story, too, I assume, that would maybe make the sensible side not as, as important to the story, right? Does that make sense? Oh, there, there are plenty of times when I show extreme not sensibleness in the adventure. <laughs> Well, Grand Trek in and of itself, to some people, may not seem sensible, right? You know, it's like a huge <laughs> undertaking. Right? Yeah, why are you doing this at all? <laughs> it's amazing you had that adventure and then you chronicled it. And now you have a book and a story to tell to others that, that may want to go on a journey like you did. Mm-hmm. So you're sharing your knowledge and you're, you're passing it on for others to follow in your footsteps, which is really cool. So, so Kathleen, what's next for you? Like, what are you thinking? What are you curious about? Are you, are you have any new book projects in the background? Yes. So one of the pieces of advice that you see all over for authors is that to sell book one, you have to write book two. Hmm. And I did at the end of the Grand Trek, the best that can happen, the Grand Trek, kind of promise a follow-on. I ran across two possible ideas. The property on which I ran the boarding and training operation was quite well known at one point and actually had been part of one of the initial land grants from the British Crown to folks here in Virginia. And there's actually a, a graveyard on the property from the late 1700s, early 1800s. And the fellow who owned the property actually was a real-life descendant of Pocahontas. So one idea I had was to trace how a property like that goes from being a hundreds of thousands of acres land grant from the crown down to McMansions mm-hmm. and telling that through people's stories on the way. Okay, so this is good. And then the other uh, idea was a murder mystery. Ooh. <laughs> so you're going to try your hand at fiction. So then the issue was who should get murdered? And I decided I would get murdered. Oh, my. Yes. So I've got two chapters of that written, and it's been great fun writing it so far. And it, it must, how does, how does it feel for you switching from nonfiction to fiction? It must, it must feel a little free because you could just let your muse sort of run because you don't have to stick to the the facts of the storytelling, right? So that must be really fun for you. It is, although uh, in Grand Trek, I do go off on flights of fancy upon occasion. The core example with the cowboy hat test incident, it's uh, pretty much fictional. And yeah, I go off on a whole rant about baseball caps versus cowboy hats. That, that was fun to write. Baseball caps don't make it, sorry. You know. <laughs> and uh, so... Sticking to a life story gives you the material to work with and making that into something interesting and worthwhile to read. And I'm finding with the fiction, with the murder mystery, having to craft 
characters, the scenes, how we're going to catch this guy, the dirty SOB that murdered me. How dare he? I was, I didn't hurt him. Mm. <laughs> how dare he? He can't kill you. Yeah, it wasn't nice. <laughs> no, not at all. So I have yet to get some real life information as to how murders are investigated on, on, on the web, but I'm going to have to know that in order to write this book. Mm-hmm. So there's truth and you got to base your fiction on, on some degree of fact. This sounds like a fun story and it sounds like you're continuing to write because you love to write and your author journey will continue and there will be more books yes. available. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that, that the muse is alive and well, and you have book projects in development and your writing life continues. And Kathleen, I have so enjoyed having you on the show today. I'm honored to be your very first podcast interview. Congratulations. You've got your first one under the belt. Would you share with listeners where they can find you and your books? At the, my author website, Mm-hmm. which is www.thebrandtrek.com. Yeah, and one go-to place. Now your website is where it's at. So, yes. Yeah, and Kathleen, thank you for the gift of your time. I've so enjoyed having you on the show, and I wish you tons and tons of success. Thank you, Carla, yourself as well. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.